Chad Daybell's Christmas wishes do not come true. Alec Murdoch gets a new judge. The father and son of a killing of a trespasser, well, they get a bond. Another guy convicted of killing his wife. And throughout nature, mothers protect their young. Do you believe this mom was protecting her kids? By God, get our dumb criminal of the day a beer. Let's talk about it. Hi, lawyer. 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 Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment and hit that little bell for notifications. Why, you may ask? Well, when you've been to YouTube jail, they kind of wipe all that out. So you have to hit the little bell so that you get your notifications again. So please do so. And remember, you can listen to us anytime on any of your favorite podcasting apps. Now, let's go ahead and get straight to the docket as we head into this holiday season. Let's begin the docket. Open the record for December 20th, 2023. And first on the docket, Chad Daybell's Christmas wishes don't come true. In fact, I think that Chad Daybell thinks that the judge, Judge Boyce, is the Grinch. As you may recall, Chad Daybell obviously is going to stand trial early next year, specifically in April. And he is going to trial as it relates to the death of JJ and Ty Lee, as well as his wife, Tammy Daybell. His trial was severed from that of his wife, Lori Vallow, because she refused to waive speedy trial. Now, the judge here in the matter, Judge Boyce, threw out the death penalty as it relates to Lori Vallow because of the prosecuting failure to turn over documents and the defense would not have had time to do that. So as a sanction, as a sanction, the court uh, threw out the death penalty and that sanction was against the government. Chad Daybell said, hey, I don't want any sanction. We'll waive speedy trial. I want time to assess and to evaluate everything. Well, like most attorneys, they want to have their cake and eat it too. So Chad Daybell gets his severance, he gets his separate trial, and he still wants the death penalty dismissed. And he made a couple of creative arguments. Let's go through them. And sometimes the best way to do it is just to go through the court's order. Now, I am not going to read you the entire order, but we're going to hit the high points. So the court put out an order late yesterday. It said this matters before the court on two motions filed by the defendant, Chad Daybell. One was the motion to strike the death penalty based upon relative culpability, and two, the motion to strike the death penalty as arbitrary and capricious and disproportionate in light of striking the death penalty in the co-defense case, both filed on November 9th. Needless to say, the state of Idaho, the prosecutors, they object. So the court goes through some procedural backgrounds and, you know, who those who follow us are pretty familiar with it. So I'm not going to go through it again. But the first issue the court takes up is the motion to strike the death penalty based upon relative culpability. The court notes that Daybell's first motion argues that the state of Idaho's theory of the case is that his alleged co-conspirator, Vallow, is more culpable than Daybell. The motion then argues that Daybell should not be subject to the death penalty because the state argued that Lori Vallow was more culpable and Vallow was not subject to the death penalty. The state argues that the motion to strike the death penalty are not procedurally ripe for review and further argues that on the merits, the motion to strike the death penalty based upon relative culpability of Daybell versus Vallow should be denied. The court goes on to state that Idaho has clearly established procedure 
for cases where capital punishment is a potential outcome. A two-phase trial is employed. One, a guilt phase where a petite jury sits in judgment of the facts and deliberates to reach a verdict of guilt or not guilty on the charges against the defendant. And two, if convicted on crimes carrying a potential for the death penalty, a petite jury then hears evidence of aggravating and mitigating factors by both the state and the defense before deliberating again on whether or not they find a statutory aggravating circumstance exists and no mitigating circumstances exist which would make the imposition of the death penalty unjust. Here, Daybell is asking the court to preempt the maximum potential penalty of death before a trial has undertaken any deliberations about his guilt of the crimes charged or heard any evidence whatsoever. It's a jury of one's peers, not a judge, who recommends the imposition of the death penalty for individuals first charged and then duly convicted of crimes eligible for the capital punishment in Idaho. Again, it is only upon a jury's determination that aggravating circumstances exist to outweigh any mitigating factors during a bifurcated sentencing phase of a capital case and that the death penalty may thereafter be imposed. Accordingly, the court does not find this request to be ripe for judicial determination because the request requires wholesale speculation as this juncture. Turning next to the substantive arguments on relative culpability, court cannot and will not speculate about what the evidence at the Daybell trial will be with respect to Daybell's culpability. To make a pretrial determination about whether Daybell is more, less, or equally culpable to Vallow, who has now been convicted of all charges brought by the state, would require this court to invade the province of the jury and make a premature determination about what the facts of the Daybell case was not Vallow's case. The court has carefully reviewed the cited authority by Daybell and the state and finds that the case law does not suggest that degrees of culpability are appropriately determined by courts ahead of trial. To do so would defy the fundamental right of a fair trial by a jury of one's peers. Thus, while Daybell is charged as a co-conspirator on some counts in the indictment, he is nevertheless also charged with the first-degree murder for the murder of Tamara, Tammy Daybell, under the Idaho Code, a crime that is punishable by death. And therefore, Daybell's argument about relative culpability is not persuasive as a basis to strike the death penalty. Moreover, the salient point remains. It is the duty of the jurors, not this court, to determine the facts of this case, including deliberating about whether the state meets its burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Daybell is guilty of the mirroring charges raised against both Daybell and Vallow. Next. The court considers uh, Daybell's second motion, which argues that the death penalty should be stricken as it's arbitrary, capricious, and disproportionate when juxtaposed with the striking of the death penalty in Vallow's case. Specifically, Daybell argues that he faces a more severe penalty because he waived his right to speedy trial. The state contests this assertion, arguing that Daybell has waived any credible basis for bringing this motion because he didn't file a joinder to Vallow's motion to remove the death penalty as a sanction for a late disclosed discovery. And further, the state argues that Daybell could have but did not bring a motion to reconsider the severance from Vallow's trial and a continuance of Daybell's own trial at the time the death penalty was stricken from Vallow's case. The court is not persuaded that Daybell suffers any prejudice of this procedural due process by allowing the death penalty to remain a sentencing potential in his case, though the death penalty was struck in Vallow's case. 
The triggering event for both Daybell and Vallow to move the court for remedy was the late disclosure of the large volume of discovery from the state in early 2023. At that time, Daybell ardently argued he needed additional time to evaluate and weigh the discovery and was thereafter afforded that by one, obtaining a severance of the trial from Vallow's trial, and two, obtaining a continuance of over one year to adequately prepare for trial. Thus, Daybell has obtained his requested relief and additionally, given the length of additional time for trial preparation that has been afforded, heightened or super due process given the potential for capital punishment in this case. The rationale to remove the death penalty as a sanction in Vallow's case was predicated on finding a material prejudice given the proximity between the time of the discovery disclosure and the trial in her case, a concern that is not evergreen for Daybell. To the contrary, Daybell has been afforded the additional time needed to mitigate prejudice, if any, for him in this case, where Vallow's team had a matter of days to review and evaluate late discovery ahead of trial. Daybell was provided a full additional year to review the material and prepare his defense. Further, Daybell's counsel has had significant benefit in preparing for his trial of observing Vallow's trial and accessing the transcripts from the case. In weighing those factors, the court does not find a persuasive argument to strike the death penalty based upon Daybell's argument that his case is arbitrary, capricious, and disproportionate. Daybell then argues that it would be unconstitutional, arbitrary, and capricious to continue seeking capital punishment in this case when it was struck in the Vallow case. The state rebuts this argument and raises the critical fact that Daybell is charged with first-degree murder for the death of Tammy Daybell, a crime punishable by death that Vallow was not charged. Nevertheless, the court will briefly walk through Idaho's procedure for capital cases. The court does that again. It's basically, once again, it's the jury to decide. It's a recommendation. The court is unpersuaded that the death penalty in this instant is sought in a manner that is arbitrary, capricious, despite Vallow not facing the same consequences. The state filed a notice of intent to seek the death penalty against both defendants. The state vigorously contested and unsurprisingly expressed frustration and disappointment with the court's striking of the penalty in the Vallow case. The state has never conceded that one of the other charged and alleged co-conspirators was more or less culpable than the other. Each defendant has been given individualized consideration from the outset of these cases and will continue to be afforded individualized consideration by this court. Further, the court will instruct the jury's compliance with the statute should a conviction result to any and all of the conspiracy uh, or murder charges in Daybell's trial, ensuring the administration of proper due process. The court notes all due process Daybell is entitled to will be carefully afforded, leaving the jury to its ultimate determination if he is adjudicated guilty of murder at the special sentencing proceedings is employed. This court will not abandon its duty under basic separation of power considerations to interpret and apply the law and invade what is rightfully the province of the legislative branch of the government. The court then notes, and citing a uh, Supreme Court case from 1951, 32 states, the military and the federal government continue to allow the death penalty as a sentencing option. Whatever the arguments may be against capital punishment, both on moral grounds and in terms of accomplishing the purpose of punishment, and they are forceful, the death penalty has been employed throughout our history and in a day when it is still widely accepted, 
it cannot be said to violate the constitutional concept of cruelty. Therefore, absent some legislative or executive action, a determination by this court that Idaho's death penalty statute is unconstitutional based upon evolving standards of decency and public opinion is unsupported. Courts are not representative bodies. They are not designed to be a good reflex of a democratic society. And finally, Daybell hypothesizes that had he not waived speedy trial, he would not be facing the death penalty. Further, he argues that he, not advised of the potential outcomes at the time he waived and argues the permitting of the death penalty to remain a potential punishment, is infringing upon his fundamental rights. The state urges the court to reject the argument. It is neither uncommon nor outright indicative of arbitrary or capricious application that co-defendants or co-conspirators may face different penalties. Throughout these two cases, DeBell has repeatedly raised the need for individualized consideration given mutually antagonistic positions between Vallow and DeBell. It is precisely because individualized considerations has been administered that the two cases did not remain joined for trial. It has been individualized consideration of Daybell's right and desire to conduct additional DNA testing that persuaded this court to sever the case and afford Daybell additional time. At every critical stage of this case, the court has been mindful of the need for individualized consideration of each defendant. Therefore, the court denies the motion to strike the death penalty based upon the relative culpability, denies the motion to strike the death penalty as arbitrary, capricious, and disproportionate in light of striking the death penalty in the co-defendant's case. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Judge Boyce, he got it right. He got it right. Um, Chad Daybell missed his opportunity by not saying, I want to go to trial with Lori Vallow, and he probably would have got the death penalty removed. I guess Lori Vallow's attorneys, whether you like him or not, they made that right tactical decision. Or maybe Lori Vallow did by simply saying, uh, let's let's go and uh, to trial and we're not waiving speedy trial. But either way, Chad Daybell faces the death penalty. It will be the jury to decide at this point. It is a question of fact, no longer a matter of law. Let the jury decide. Next, Alec Murdoch gets a new judge. So Jean Toll, she is a retired former chief justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court, has been assigned to preside over the Alec Murdoch case. As uh, the convicted killer, Alec Murdoch awaits a hearing on a potential retrial. Now, Justice Toll, she's 80 years old. She is replacing Judge Clifton Newman as the presiding judge, overseeing all court proceedings related to the Murdoch murder case. This is pursuant to an order issued Monday by Donald Beatty, the current South Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice. Now, the Supreme Court's order appointing a toll to the case gives her specific authority to schedule hearings as may be necessary at any time without regard as to whether there is a term of court scheduled. Now, Toll was the first woman to serve on the South Carolina Supreme Court and is the first woman to have been Chief Justice, serving one full 10-year term from 2004 to 2013 and portions of two other terms beginning in 2000 and 2014. She retired from the bench in 2015 from a full-time service from the court. She is now doing what they call senior status, riding the circuit where needed. Well, Judge Newman, who is 72, he retires from the bench at the end of 2023 and requested to be relieved of his assignment 
on the Murdoch murder case and the developing controversies over claims of jury tampering that may have affected the outcome of the Alec Murdoch trial. Now, Judge Newman, in March of 2023, sentenced Alec Murdoch to two terms of life imprisonment after the Colton County jury found Murdoch guilty of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. Now, the jury deliberations only lasted about three hours after a six-week trial. Well, the South Carolina Court of Appeals in October remanded the murder case back to the circuit court for a hearing on a potential retrial after Murdoch's defense attorneys filed allegations that the Culleton County Clerk of the Court, Becky Hill, may have tampered with the jury. Now, the attorneys um, requested that Judge Newman be prohibited from overseeing future matters related to the murder case because of apparent bias. They cited opinionated statements that the judge had made about Alec Murdoch and his guilt in academic speeches and media appearances after the trial. Now, the Supreme Court in South Carolina ultimately denied Murdoch's lawyer's request to bar Judge Newman, but they did accept Judge Newman's voluntary decision to step aside. Now, according to some trial transcripts, Judge Newman was involved in an in-chambers discussion with the defense and prosecuting attorneys where Newman himself expressed concern that Hill may have had improper contact with at least one juror who was later removed from the trial for discussing the case outside of court. However, that juror's credibility is in question because it was noted they made conflicting statements to the court about several things, including not being honest about having spoken to members of the public about the case during the trial. Now, Judge Newman himself could also be called as a witness in the hearing regarding requesting a retrial where the issue of Hill's jury contact may arise. Now, the attorneys for Murdoch in September produced affidavits from four jurors, including the one who was removed, alluding to Hill potentially having improper contact with the jury during the trial. Now, the affidavits attributed to three of the four jurors interviewed by Murdoch's lawyers accuse Hill of telling the jury not to be fooled or misled by Alec Murdoch's testimony or evidence and arguments presented by Murdoch's attorneys. And one of the three jurors also specifically recalled Miss Hill telling the jury to pay special attention to Murdoch's actions and movements on the witness stand. It is alleged that Hill may have coached the jury to pay special attention to Murdoch's body language or movements while testifying. Uh, has since been corroborated by three additional jurors separately interviewed by the state police as part of their inquiry into the jury tampering claims. However, none of the jurors interviewed by the defense, prosecution, or state investigators indicated Hill did anything that specifically swayed their opinion regarding Alec Murdoch's guilt. Now, the South Carolina Attorney General's office has said it is confident a full investigation will prove that Ms. Hill did nothing to ultimately affect the trial verdict. In the meanwhile, Becky Hill is the target of a uh, related public corruption investigation now under the purview of the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, a.k.a. SLED. It's alleged that Hill's son, Jeffrey Hill, is the former director of technology for the Colton County government. And state police say that Mr. Hill was discovered in July to have abused his position by illegally monitoring a phone call of county staff. Then the state police arrested Hill in November and charged him with one count of wiretapping. It was alleged that Jeffrey Hill 
uh, was spying on both the calls and emails of his county coworkers to learn what was being discussed internally about any ethics complaints against his mother. Now, Becky Hill's county-issued cell phone was also seized as part of that ongoing investigation into her role, if any, in the corruption allegations her son now faces. Now, Becky Hill is the subject of at least one complaint to the State Ethics Commission, which accuses her of unethically leveraging her elected position for personal gain, primarily through her actions related to a book that she published about the Alec Murdoch trial. The complaint that was filed back in June of this year by a concerned citizen claims that Ms. Hill utilized her authority, the Colton County Courthouse, and taxpayers' money outside the scope of the routine court business. The ethics complaint against Hill nor the state corruption probe tied to herself and her son are directly related to the Murdoch's request for a new trial. Now, a date for the retrial hearing has not yet been set, but the attorney is involved with the case has previously suggested a retrial hearing likely uh, would not be uh, called or set before February of 2024. Well, Elsewhere in South Carolina, a father and son charged with murder for the death of a man on their property were released from jail on bond. Ryan Linder Sr. and Ryan Linder Jr. were arrested and charged with murder after shooting a man they say was holding a machete who had trespassed on their property. Well, that seems reasonable enough, uh, but there's one problem. Over the course of their investigation by the police, which included interviews with both Linders and witnesses, Detectives determined that the elder Linder told the younger Linder uh, to shoot the victim. The shooting happened after the elder Linder had taken the machete away from the victim, who was then unarmed when he was allegedly shot. Well, Judge Walton McLeod IV granted the pair a $150,000 bond after a uh, hearing which saw 150 people packed into the courtroom and another 200 people outside in support of the Linders. Needless to say, under the conditions of their bond, the Linders were released, but they will be on home detention with ankle monitors, and they need to stay at least 300 yards away from the victim's home. And yes, guess what? Another guy convicted of killing his wife, who coincidentally just happens to be a doctor. What is it with doctors wanting to harm their wives? How many cases do we talk about? Doctors harming their wives. Anyway, in this particular case, a, um, South California, a Southern California fertility doctor has been convicted for the murder of his wife seven years after he told police, oops, she fell down the stairs. Dr. Ellis Scott Sills was arrested back in April of 2019 over the 2016 killing of his wife. And apparently there was a little tension between he and his late wife, Susan. The tensions were apparently over a nude photo his wife posted online after she lost a bet over Donald Trump's 2016 election chances. Well, the good doctor's been on bail, a million-dollar bail, um, almost immediately after he was arrested. And uh, once the court proceedings began this past month, prosecutors uh, said at the outset that the injuries for the doctor's good wife were not consistent with that, oops, she fell down the stairs narrative. Like I said, Sills was found guilty of second-degree murder. He now faces a sentence of up to 15 years to life after sticking to that story of, oops, she fell down the stairs, the same one that he told paramedics and the 911 operator back on November 16th of 2016. 
And uh, on that faithful night, Sills called 911 and said that he awoke to find his lifeless body of his wife, Suzanne, after she fell down the stairs. Unfortunately for him, the evidence presented at the trial showed that she died due to strangulation. And yes, there were some blood stains that were found on a wall and curtains in the daughter's bedroom where Suzanne was uh, sleeping, apparently due to a migraine headache. Also, a little bit of, of a clump of hair was found in the room, indicating maybe there'd been some struggle, perhaps. Well, needless to say, those inconsistencies in that story proved crucial to the jurors agreeing to find the good doctor guilty of one count of second-degree murder. Prosecutors also labeled the murder a staged accident, pointing uh, the fact that the, the dad of two parents attempt to cover up the killing, squeezing the life out of his wife after a series of uh, lover quarrels. Well, the district attorneys provided jurors with an example of one of those little tiffs via printout of text messages, one of which suggests Susan posted a topless photo of herself online after losing this bet about Trump winning the election in 2016. A uh, printout of the exchange with a chat group member about whether the uh, posted photo would upset her husband was found near the printer in the doctor's office after her death. And another message saying, she told her husband that uh, she wants out. And given the substantial injuries on the victim's face and neck, uh, the prosecutors attempted to sway jurors uh, with those exchanges, as well as another between the couple where Sill told her husband, you're killing me, don't you see? The couple has two daughters that are twins uh, that were uh, 14 at the time of the uh, murder. And Sills is also the father of two adult offspring from a previous marriage. Sill's uh, sentencing is uh, slated for March 15th. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this next case. These are always difficult cases, had cases like this, all right? And as we said in the introduction, throughout nature, mothers protect their young. All animal, all mothers do that, um, whether it's humans or some other animal in nature. It's just the way things are. But did this mom do that? So a Texas man has been arrested for allegedly sexually abusing an 11-year-old girl for more than six years. Do the math. That would make her five. Well, the victim reported the assaults to the school staff back in November, claiming that Andrew Aubrey started abusing her when she was just five. She alleged that Aubrey would abuse her while her mother worked or was not at home. And needless to say, the police interviewed the victim's mother, who stated that her daughter was a liar and that Aubrey, although many things, including an idiot, immature, and inappropriate, but he wasn't a sexual predator. She also said that Mr. Aubrey was not, uh, had, had not had a job in five years, and he was staying home to care for those kids. Well, needless to say, the 11-year-old described how Aubrey sometimes sexually assaulted her after he came home stumbling drunk. She also allegedly uh, said that um, she would stay in her room to avoid Aubrey when he was home. Seems like a reasonable thing to do. Anyway, the victim's mother allegedly told police that her daughter lied about being sexually assaulted so that she could move in with her grandparents. This is to say Mr. Aubrey was contacted by the police. To his credit, I guess he refused to uh, speak with them under the advice of his lawyer. Good call. But despite that, guess what? Mr. Aubrey was arrested and charged with continuous sexual abuse of a child and the Child Protective Services removed the victim and her two siblings from their mother's home three days after the report. But don't worry, Mr. Aubrey was released on a $75,000 bond. Do you want to take a bet as to whether it was 
mom of the kids that bonded him out? Somehow, I think she did. Anyway, we'll give Mr. Aubrey the presumption of innocence like we all do, but just one of those things. Usually the, uh, usually moms comes to the aid of the children, believes the kids. Just, just saying. Not saying kids aren't capable of lying. We all know they are. But five through 11, that's just gross. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. By God, get this man a drink. All right, this morning about 1 a.m., the uh, police officers in Oklahoma flagged down by a Quick Trip employee. Quick Trip is a gas station. Well, an unknown male suspect used a pipe to smash two doors uh, to their beer coolers and stole beer before leaving in a silver Land Rover. The story's just beginning. A few hours later, a silver Land Rover being driven by the uh, suspect, well, was driven into and through the front of another convenience store. The suspect then got out consumed a beer, chatted with the employees before officers arrived on the scene, and guess what? He was ultimately taken into custody. Now, while the uh, suspect was detained, officers uh, worked with basically information they had, and guess what? They concluded that uh, Jose Silverio, the driver of the SUV, was the same person who did the felony vandalism petite Lashni at the other convenience store. So, Silverero was booked into the David L. S. Moss uh, Detention Center for charges related to felony vandalism. I get it, man. When beer sales close, you want to have a beer. You can't steal it with a pipe. And you definitely don't want to drive through another store. But hey, at least you got your beer. Mr. Silverio, you are our dumb criminal of the day. Congratulations, you made it. Not much time left in the year to make the dumb criminal contestant category, let alone the winner. So congratulations. All right. I want to thank everybody for watching. We'll see you next time. And remember, the Constitution matters.